Section 2 of The Influence of Monarchs by Frederick Adams Woods. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 2 Philosophy of History and Historiometry. The present indifference to any systematic outlook on history is not hard to understand. Although the most brilliant and gifted minds have worked in the field of historical interpretation, it is not surprising that little advance has been made. The famous champions lie well in the past. They could hardly have been expected to have any clear conception of human development if they lived and died before the days of Darwin, Wallace, and Spencer. Evolution, in some form, was, it is true, already the conviction of nearly every great thinker from Thales to Goethe. They guessed at the continuity from general considerations, but they did not know it until the naturalists proved it, and furthermore, the ideas of natural selection, survival of the fittest, hereditary, and modification from the environment were practically non-existent, or at least not utilizable as they are today. Not only do the pre-Darwinian philosophers of history lack assurance for the correct genetic point of view in regard to the development of human society, but more painful still, their systems were developed in a way to give free rein to the most rampant theories. Never once did the be convinced Invernus and Erudite, apostles of historico-political doctrinaires, devise any check to curb their waywardness, or recognize the dangers of the personal equation. The result has been that the well-known writers who have attempted to interpret historical meaning are always found unconvincing. They have been one-sided in their devotions, or narrow in their scope, and always deficient in scientific method. The partnership of each famous writer is so evident that it is worth while to go over a list of the leading philosophers of history very quickly and show that each can be associated at once with some particular presumption. It is unnecessary to begin as early as the ancients. Neither the Greeks nor the Romans regarded history as a subject for special philosophy. Political science and political experience occupied much of their attention, and here they were, the great pioneers. But the world had then but a brief historical past to look to and was not much interested in gazing backward. Perhaps the earliest contribution to the philosophy of history was the De Civitas Dei of St. Augustine, and recognizes historical unity and the progress of mankind, but it subordinates all things to the Church, is essentially a theological discourse that ignores secular culture and the ordinary human interests. It was more than 900 years after the death of the great Latin father before another considerable attempt was made to interpret the record of the past. Ibn Khaldun, the Arab historian, wrote during the last part of the 14th century a so-called universal history, the first volume of which, Mokodama, or Preface, is devoted to discussion of causation. Although the Arab race has produced few original thinkers, the Mokodama, whatever its defects may be, is certainly an original work. Ibn Khaldun was the first to treat history as a proper object of a special science, and, considering the age in which he lived, the Arabic philosopher was indeed remarkable in the depth and keenness of his observations and the numerous anticipations of modern theories. By him we first hear sounded the well-known themes taken up by Montesquieu, Drapier, Buckle, and scores of others. A nation's life is like the life of an individual with youth, maturity, and decay. A civilization is determined by its geographic, climatic, and personal entourage. Soil, rivers, moisture, mountains, deserts, seas, all come in as factors in his reckoning, nor are the psychological causes entirely overlooked. 
Luxury and town life enervate the native vigour of nomad tribes. Adequate proofs of cause and effect are of course lacking, but the mere suggestion of so many naturalistic factors in civilization was a wonderful thing in itself. And more than this, Ibn Khaldun appears to have been the first historian to appreciate not only human adaptation, but also progress. He went far beyond any of the Christian chroniclers of the Middle Ages. They were quite unconscious that history had been unfolding successive stages of development. Ibn Khaldun was the earliest devotee of what may be called the environmental school of historical philosophers. He had, of course, no idea of the force of hereditary or of natural selection, sexual selection, or many other internal causes recognized today as important factors in the rise and fall of nations. Bowdoin, 1530-1596, and Montesquieu, 1689-1755, show much the same bias. Fio, 1668-1744, great in his understanding of the evolution of Roman law, brought into history his own law, the law of cycles, and then forced facts to conform. Beausset rode around a theological centrum, and his eye never wandered far from the focus. Rousseau made a paradox of history and did not even recognize the truth of the general progress of humanity. He more than any of the others excelled in the arts of the special pleader, and whatever service this eccentric genius may have rendered the cause of liberty, his effect on the philosophy of history was to introduce even greater confusion. Hegel, with his universal interest and own theory of the universe, plunged into history, but not until he had already developed his philosophical system. Hegel reduced everything to his formula, the development of the idea. His philosophy of history is his most popular work, has been much translated and recently reprinted as part of a popular science series in English. It is unsatisfactory to historians, not to account of its metaphysical point of view, but because so many of its chief subsidiary theories are in defiance of the facts of history. For instance, according to Hegel, Man in his primitive condition lived in the mountainous regions of the globe, next in the plains and valleys, lastly by the coasts and mouths of rivers. The first form of government which we see in history is despotism, the second democracy and aristocracy, the third monarchy. All-powerful is the spirit of the age. The great man is merely its incarnation. Hegel has no place for the opposite view, that the great man may be the accidental result of favourable inherent qualities and himself the moulder of his age. Friedrich von Schlegel also wrote from the metaphysical point of view. Man was created free, two courses lay before him, upward towards God or downward to the abyss. The lectures on the philosophy of history, first published in 1829, still maintain a certain popularity and are included in Bond's standard library, but they show the same general fault of all philosophies of history, written from a premeditated position. Schlegel's desire is to glorify the Catholic Church. He was opposed to principles of political and religious freedom. August Comte, from an entirely different, though equally a priori conception, tried to make the statements of history fit his theory of the law of the three states. The earliest and most primitive stage of human evolution was the theological, next came the metaphysical, and finally the positive or scientific. Whether his generalization be true or not, when viewed in its widest interpretation, it is certain that Comte strained the facts of history in his handling and was partial to the selection of only such materials as attracted his eye as would decorate a handiwork to which he had pledged his life's devotions. Scientific knowledge has advanced since man dwelt in the savage state. 
and seemingly at the expense of theology and metaphysics. Comte did not realize that the sources of theology and metaphysics are infinite, and that reservoirs fill not the loss. Take something from infinity, and infinity remains. Theology and metaphysics continually expand anew from higher and higher levels. This depreciation of religious and spiritual forces is generally considered a primary defect in the writings of Buckle. From the biological standpoint, his theory of history is very one-sided. Environment is extolled and hereditary decried. Moral forces, so neglected by Comte and Buckle, became, for Droysen, the one important consideration. Historical things have their truth in the moral force, as natural things have theirs in natural laws. Historical things are the perpetual actualization of these moral forces. To think historically means to see their truth in the actualities resulting from that moral energy. The names of many other less notable philosophers of history might be cited, and it would be easy to show that they, like their more famous brethren, generally can be at once associated with some particular theory. More often than otherwise, their writings are biased, usually notoriously so, but even when their views are many one-sided and their discrimination is fine, as with Guizots and Turcotte, no mention is taken to ensure objectivity. The interpretations, excelled as they may seem to one reader, may not suit another reader. For the very fact that they do not stress that particular reader's private fancy, and so even here again, all go out the same door where they went in, and nothing permanent is gained. All these considerations make it increasingly clear that a new method is needed in historical interpretation, one that shall make the investigator able, in some way, to take cognizance of contrary forces and contrary explanations at the same time that he is testing his own working hypothesis. The business of science is to get concerted agreement. About the only ideas on which the great majority of historical philosophers may be said to agree are the ideas of progress, of humanity and of freedom, the last two embodied in the first, so that there is not much more agreed upon by historians than the general conception that somehow, and on the whole, there has been a progress and increase of the store of human knowledge and the advance to more complex levels of what we call civilization. The economic interpretation, the geographical, the anthropogeographical, the culture geschichte, the individualistic, the political, and the ideological are all current. It is not advancing very far or a proof of any great discernment to adopt the view of the autonomic or sociological school and say that there is some truth in each of these one-sided interpretations. Of course, there is something to be said for each set of opinions. The question is, how much? The method I propose has for its chief aim just this quantitative valuation. We have had enough of idle argument of a priori dogmatism, of free generalizations from half-truths and internally conflicting conclusions. The time is now ripe for the introduction into the study of history of the methods which have so much improved the conditions of human life through advancing the sciences of physics, chemistry, electricity, medicine and public hygiene. Inductive methods, methods of the laboratory, methods of experimentation. No objection can be raised because you cannot set up governments merely in order to see how well they work, or place races in new surroundings, or control the breeding of man as man controls the breeding of domestic animals. All objections of this sort are swept away by the simple reply. The experiments have been performed. History is their record. 
It is estimated that 400,000 books have been written on the subject of human history. All, or the greater part of these writings, have been read and re-read, culled over, rearranged, criticised and utilised by other historians, and the whole concentrated into textbooks, standard histories and encyclopedias. This great mass of knowledge may be likened to a pyramid in which the sources lie at the base and the few books that are often read by many people, not the mere popular, but the standard and authoritative works, lie somewhere towards the apex. Their statements are drawn from the material which lies beneath. They are fewer in number, and their material is more concentrated. Resting upon these standard works and taking support from the broad nether structure lie the most concentrated of all. The brief historical articles written by the special experts and bound up with other quintessential matter in the modern encyclopedias. Can it be that all this information is useless, that there is no lesson to be learned except the bare narrative, no prime causes to be demonstrated as more important than other causes in determining the destinies of nations? Considering the importance of the subject and the great advances made by objective investigations in the organic and inorganic sciences, it is not only high time that a beginning be made, but there are many reasons for thinking that now, and only now, all things favour a successive issue. After the theory of evolution became established and the excitement of the fray had dwindled on the great primary problem, there still remained the question how evolution had taken place, and questions centering around modes and manners of inheritance. This led to the introduction of new methods as an adjunct to mere observation the propounding of numerical laws covering hereditary, and the bringing over into psychology and sociology, as well as biology, of systems of grades and measurements. Quidlet was the first to apply, on a large scale, quantitative expression to human attributes. He worked from 1823 onward. Galton took up the idea and developed it further, and especially applied it to hereditary and eugenics. The total number of investigators who in one way or another have used methods of measurement in psychology and biology, is certainly in the hundreds, if not in the thousands. But it is only since about 1895 that this movement has been well underway. The recentness of this development is one explanation why no attempt has so far been made to quantitate historical movements. A very few, not more than a dozen persons at most, have made some more or less objective analysis of groups of persons mentioned in history, chiefly historical celebrities, with the idea of discovering the qualities of such men and explaining the origin and psychology of genius. These researches have not as yet been applied to historical criticism or historical interpretation, but their results are valuable as a line of departure in this direction. In the issue of Science for November 19, 1909, under the title of a new name for a new science. I published a brief bibliography of such researches and proposed the term historiometry for the same, i.e. any researches in which the statements of history have been subjected to more or less objective method of measurement. In some of these researches, the personal bias of the investigator is slight or negligible. In others, the personal equation is higher, but all aim at providing something by means of counting historical instances pro and con, the advance which these scientifically inclined writers have made over all earlier interpreters lies in the counting of the cons. But all the objectivity does not necessarily mean the attainment of even roughly satisfactory truth or the conviction of the properly critical. 
The criticism is at once raised that unless we can be sure of the accuracy of our sources and the truth of our data, it is unsafe to draw generalization and conclusions. Skepticism arises in the midst of the reader, and he is inclined to doubt the value of any and all such researchers. As I said before, such a general criticism is entirely unfounded. It is perfectly possible to proceed as if the sources were all verified and the original data correctly drawn, as if the errors were negligible. When the results are all in and lie before the eye, it may turn out that the errors of the original data are not negligible, or that nothing but confusion can be made of the original data. In other words, that the research is a failure, but on the other hand, it may turn out that the results contain within themselves something which proves that the original data must have been of sufficient worth. In other words, the amount of approximate error which the original data contained may be grasped as the research proceeds, and its measurement made a part of the problem itself. This concept, which it is so necessary for the reader to get at the start, and which I have said is fundamental in the development of histiorometry, is perhaps most easily obtained by recourse to concrete examples. In hereditary and royalty, I came to the conclusion that hereditary is a very strong force, and that environment is not. Can this conclusion have been wrongly arrived at because of the errors which history and biography necessarily contain? What I did in this research was first to bring together, as one collection, all the easily available statements concerning the mental and moral characteristics of royalty, the second to arrange the individuals in the order of their reputed merit, two kinds, mental and moral, third, to rearrange the individuals according to reputed ancestry, genealogical arrangement, fourth, to measure mathematically the correlations between individuals, close of kin, or more strictly, closer reputed kin. I showed that when this was done, it was found that correlations existed agreeing substantially with those already obtained in the anthropometric laboratory. As I wrote in Science, April 14, 1911, such would not be the case if historians perverted the truth greatly, or, if for any other reason, the truth were largely unattainable. To make this clear, it is only necessary to think what the result would be if history were merely a pack of lies agreed upon, as the extreme view puts it. We should then fail to properly pick out our true intellectual giants and runts. The result would be nothing but confusion. A whole series of errors would be distributed at random. This would act like rain on waves and flatten down to a common level the real differences between the individuals. The correlation measurements would fall, and we should get no results comparable to those obtained from the delicate and accurate measurements of the anthropometric laboratory. Furthermore, any weakness in the method of grading, any failure to properly classify the great men in the higher grades and the degenerates in their proper grades, would work in precisely the same direction to lower the correlation coefficients. The supposed errors of history and the difficulties of grading act as two united strains and tension to pull the coefficients down towards zero, which would be the coefficient for random distribution. If the coefficients can stand the strain without declining, then roughly speaking, we may conclude both that the historical foundation is just then that the method of procedure is sound. Once this simple mathematical principle is comprehended, it becomes evident that several specific criticisms that were directed against hereditary and royalty were entirely besides the mark, and were due to the inability of the reviewer to understand the significance of the very objections which he raised. 
These pretended scientific criticisms appeared exclusively in literary or historical reviews, or in the daily press, not in journals devoted to science. Although the reviewers in scientific journals did not fall into such errors as the following, they did not call the attention of their readers to the point that the random errors of history in this particular series had hereby been shown to be trivial and immeasurable. False criticisms like the following were fairly common. Some complained that the authorities, worth consulted, were out of date or meagre in material. My reply is that while it is perfectly true that I took authorities uncritically, I had at the same time proved that such a method apparently introduces no error commensurate with the truth which it somehow does obtain, truth evidently sufficiently accurate for the needs of this particular study. The point is that the out-of-date authorities would not, in their separate descriptions of different individuals, have any conscious or unconscious bias towards the theory of hereditary. On the contrary, there is reason to suppose they would be especially free from such a bias, because they wrote long ago, before there was any general belief in the force of hereditary. Yet even with such material, blurred and incomplete as it was, the hereditary factor was unmistakable. The strongly contrasted traits of character could still be seen in the hazy and ill-defined ensemble of only partially authenticated history. How strong then hereditary must be. That should be the nature of the mental reaction growing out of the observation that poor authorities had been used. The same kind of reply is to be made to those who criticise the use made of encyclopedias and the arbitrary use of Lippincott's biographical dictionary as one of the criteria of admission into the grade called genius. Some few critics, newspaper critics only, wish to throw overboard all the results because of the great difference of opinion in regard to some historical characters. One cited Leola and Luther, and asked what the result would be if in their cases one tried to balance opinions and strike an average out of such notorious discord. My reply is that I was not concerned, for the time being, with Loyola and Luther. I was concerned with showing, among other things, the need presupposed conflict of opinions, which some persons might have supposed to permeate history cannot be great, in at least one department of history, because if it were, the sequences which I have uncovered could not possibly be found. Another type of criticism was made chiefly in historical journals, which had no bearing on the main conclusions of the work. A historian would here and there see a character described or graded not in accordance with his personal judgment. He would point out a name those kings, queens, or other personages whose characterizations he believed unjust, and would then argue that because a portion of the work contained error, the rest might not be above suspicion. Whereas he should have tried to show that the particular specific errors which he had noticed were of such a nature as to lead me falsely to magnify hereditary. That is, he should have done so had he wished to prove the errors vitiated my conclusions. It was perfectly proper for him as his historian to suggest a different opinion regarding the classifying and grading. I should be glad to readjust and improve the assignments of grades, but the general effect of such improvement would be to strengthen the conclusions already obtained. At least, that is what the probabilities indicate. These conclusions I have been able to demonstrate as clear and certain enough for ordinary purposes, even though I use rough data. If the data had been absolutely fallacious, my correlation ratios for offspring and fathers would have been approximately r equals zero. As a matter of fact, this correlation was found for intellectual qualities to be r equals point three zero. 
The only way to justify to attack the conclusion from hereditary and royalty that the judgments of historians are now proved and known to be fair approximation to the truth would be to show a bias in the material constantly working towards raising the correlation radios or else to attack the work as its only subjective point namely the arrangement into grades here my own personal judgment to some extent entered if it can be shown that i have on the average unjustly overrated the kinsmen of the individuals in the highest grades nine and ten i should then spiritually have raised the correlation ratios a critic should take a few sections of the book at random and see if this tendency can be detected to summarize the situation if one wishes to discover a correlation between two historical variables deviations from random distribution or from the average type one should start with materials supposed to be good because only with true statements as data can one detect the full force of the correlation but having found some correlation it is not necessary to go back and justify the materials used except there is a bias in the whole material towards the conclusion the correlation found if it sufficiently exceeds a probable error is guarantee that some correlation exists which is in all probability even greater in reality than the measurement indicates another example of a research based upon data known to carry some scattering errors yet yielding a conclusion all the more certain on this account is the following in the year nineteen hundred nine i happened to wish to know whether more leading americans of the present generation had been born in the cities than in the rural communities in other words had more leading americans come from the cities than their population would lead one to expect or have the cities failed to produce their proper quota as a convenient way of answering this question i turned to the latest number of who's who in america arithmetical computation showed at once the cities leading and only a little further investigation was needed to prove that according to this book the cities had done more than their share and with a wide margin for accidental error whereas about sixteen per cent was all that in proportion to the population could be expected from the cities that actually furnished about thirty two per cent there are then but two conclusions either that the editors have been unjustly partial indeed doubly biased towards men of city birth or that there is really something in city birth either inheritance or environment that favours the achievement of notability it would be a vain criticism to suggest any ways in which the list might supposedly be biased towards those of city birth but unless such specific criticism be made any general criticism that the list contains scattering errors contains names of doubtful merit amidst other names that ought to be included is a criticism that works in precisely the opposite direction from detracting from the belief that the cities have been the chief birthplaces of notable americans to make this clear let us think of it in the following way unless the list had been made up of persons possessing some peculiarity there would be no more and no less born in the cities than the population demanded some peculiarity in the list some predilection on the part of the editors towards men not random samples of the entire population of the united states is absolutely proved therefore if the editors have not been biased the only other inference is that this observed deviation in the birth ratios is associated with a quality which the book claims to select namely notability a list made up at random would show no greater number born in the cities than the total urban population demands next consider what the result would be if a very bad list were used 
one made up only a few of the real leaders, and almost entirely composed of mediocre or worthless names. Such a list could, of course, only give a very slight, perhaps doubtful correlation between notability and city birth. Let us consider what the result would be if a somewhat better list of names were used. The truth of the matter would then begin to show itself more clearly. The better the list, the more the truth would stand out. In other words, if the list were worse, more full of error, than the one that I have used, it would bring out the fact less strongly. Therefore, if the list of names were better, more ideally chosen, than the one I have used, it would bring out the truth even more strongly than I have found it. Two conclusions then are warranted. First, that a list which, in any and every portion of its entirely, shows twice the number born in the cities that random expectation calls for, must be worthy of being called a very good working list. And second, that the cities have produced probably more than twice their share of notables. All this is said under the supposition that the list does not carry any prejudice in favour of the conclusion to which the investigator has come. This is a very important question, for if there be any special reasons why the constant, on the average, unjust bias enters, the conclusion is in part artificially induced. I must be remembered that I have only said that if a general criticism is brought against a list of names, from random errors, this acts to strengthen the conclusion already obtained. If, on the other hand, a bias in favour of the conclusion is present in the original list, then it is a very different matter. In this particular instance, we start with the common-sense belief that the editors of this reverence work have not compiled their list with the object of proving that city-born boys reach a higher degree of leadership than non-urban. There may, however, be ways in which the list unconsciously and unjustly favours the city-born. Criticisms of this sort are entirely proper, for it is part of the work of historiometry not only to avoid bias, but to be able to detect it and measure it. Let it be suspected that part or the whole of the increase of city birth leadership is due to an excessive partiality towards professional men, and that the same result would not be found if business and practical types were considered. This is a fair criticism. The answer is reinvestigate. Split the whole material into two parts, the practical business types and the learned professional, they compare the two results. It is not to the point to discuss the possible special criticisms that might be raised a propos of this particular research. It is enough to say that any just criticism raising the point of bias should be answered. Any defect in the method which would in any way falsely magnify the conclusion ought to be closely scrutinised by the general criticism that any and all such researches are rendered less solid and reliable on account of the general errors of judgment which permeated the original material on which they rest is an utterly false objection. The tendency of the random errors of history is to make the true but hidden causes correlations, and other generalizations which laws, though actually existing, are more or less buried or overlooked in the mass of historical detail. Any device that can work out a general or continuous principle from the historical elements does so in spite of these random errors. This being the case, the random errors of history may be ignored when generalized causes are sought, and the results cannot be wrong simply because the original material is known or supposed to carry some amount of random error. The concrete example I've just given illustrates what may be called the paradox of historical generalization. The worse material, the more certain is a generalized conclusion, provided there be no bias in the selection of material towards the conclusion reached. This statement does not apply to the usual types of historical investigation, and this, I take it, is the reason why so many historians are unwilling, at first sight, to accept the truth of such a paradox. A typical problem for the historian 
is the measuring or judging of some historical detail. Take, for instance, the dispute concerning the real characteristics of Richard III of England. Surely it cannot be that the worse our sources, the more certain we can be of our conclusions. The difference is this. Here is the no third point against which a triangulation is made and an overplus found which must be accepted as significant and taken as a lower limit of proof. In the case of city birth and leadership, we measure these two elements over against a third element, namely normal distribution of the population, and measure its deviation from the normal or random distribution. In histeriometric work, there is this third element which is a novel and peculiar feature. The case is quite different when we are dealing with details and not with generalizations and correlations. In dealing with the question of the real characteristics of Richard III of England, an examination of the worth of each separate statement becomes necessary. The reason for this difference is careful consideration. There is some assurance that the mere balancing or averaging of the opinions pro and con gives a good and true picture of any one king or prince specifically selected out of all royalty. This conclusion is drawn from the generalized conclusion that usually such a method must give a fair approximation of the truth. But any one specific individual selected out of a group may be the very one to whom such a method of balancing opinions applies the least. What is true in the general is likely to be true in any specific instance, provided we know nothing further about the particular instance. But as soon as we do not know something about the particular instance, the case may be altered. The same sort of reasoning applies in our ordinary human social relations and in our everyday knowledge of mankind. For some purposes, we may wish to know as much as possible about some individual person. In default, a special knowledge of the individual and in general knowledge as to his age, race, class, profession or education would help us to form an opinion about him. But a particular and intimate knowledge of the individual would be more to be desired, as long as our interest centres on the individual. On the other hand, for some purpose of generalization, as in anthropology, sociology, life insurance, etc., our interests may be general, not special. So our interest in history may be special and detailed, or it may be directed to discovering general principles, correlations, and causes. In studying the life of Richard III, a few original documents may be worth a great deal more than the multitudinous statements of later historians, eminent as far as one can see from the writers under the patronage of Henry VIII. Richard's rival and enemy. If an historian disbelieves the older and unfavorable verdict of history, he makes use of the reliance on probabilities, but his reluctance is essentially subjective and personal, and a part of his general judgment and common sense, as a result of his contact with men and with books. He knows or thinks he knows the probability of human vanity, the probability that certain documents found in certain places are likely to be genuine. He thinks that certain contemporary writers are more likely to be trustworthy than others, which ideas are based on other probabilities, he was all together, and gives what to his mind is the most probable view of the whole situation. The reader accepts, in so far as it fits in with his own judgment, that he never is obliged to do so in the way one is obliged to accept a mathematical demonstration. It has not seemed possible in the present state of knowledge to devise a method which shall give objective proof in problems of isolated periods or in questions of historical detail. Nor does it seem desirable to do so. We do not wish to eliminate the personal equation from the specialist of historical details. The personal equation is the best thing about him, or at least should be, in order to represent advanced knowledge from advanced experience. 
by the historian who goes in for explaining general causes or even the special causes of limited periods is in a very different position no excuse can be offered for the self-sustained historian who plumes himself for the gratuitous task of confidently supplying the reader with the reasons why this or that has taken place the difference is this many a man has been able to handle the purely descriptive side of history in a way to give fair satisfaction to the great majority of his intelligent critics the world of scholarship as a whole is satisfied with most if not all of his statements therefore something definite has been accomplished something permanently worth while has been done when a specialist publishes a book or memoir or descriptive history and confines himself to facts and judgments but no one has ever gone high enough in subjective judgments to settle questions of historical causation this is evidenced by the great diversity of interpretations both major and minor and the disaffection on every hand which such attempts have always met and even if there should arise a superhuman being whose objective judgments were so perfect that he allotted all causes correctly ordinary mortals would still need the proofs otherwise how should we know that he was right the orthodox methods may suffice for those who seek to weigh documentary evidence and reconstruct the past in so far as historians are unearthing mess and comparing sources and deciding in their own minds what evidence is genuine and what is false no slurs can be cast at the modern school their methods are scientific and their aims are in the majority of cases sincerely directed to the discovery of the truth nor are such specialists merely worthy of being called into court as witnesses of facts they are also entitled to qualify as experts on questions involving opinions history as we commonly find it in the printed accounts must approximate sufficiently to what actually happened to meet the need of ordinary purposes both of scientific analysis and superstructure historians must have already sifted facts and reported judgments with a higher degree of sanity and completeness at least for some departments of history otherwise the interlocking results of historiometry which i have found could most emphatically not be found the phrase report of judgments I used to cover all expressions of valuation of the traits of historical characters good or bad the general use of adjectives of praise and dispraise and also the giving of opinions concerning the condition of a nation's army navy treasury trade and commerce or other direct statements which historians make involving the use of judgment but stopping short of questions of cause it is very easy to say that george the fourth of england was immoral it is not easy to say but it is easy to find agreement in the sources and to get agreement among the readers to bring everything together and to arrive at this one conclusion and no other it may be judging from the naive way in which some historians write very easy for them to say why george fourth is immoral but it is not easy for them to make other people believe it an author who says commerce declined assumes a very different kind of responsibility when one who says commerce declined because etc it is the unfounded i might say confounded introduction of the word because against which i protest there may be a few obvious causes of broad historic movements for which general agreement can be reached without any specially arranged contrivance for compelling the proof but i do not happen to think of any for the moment even the classical assumptions that rome declined because of its luxury and greece was injured through the rivalries of petty states are open to serious objections and to many counter-arguments and even it can be agreed that these factors enter somewhat into the problem unless we have some kind of a notion of how deeply they enter in unless through some scientific scheme we have arranged the many contributing causes 
somewhat in the order of their importance. What is the use? Dogmatic statements do not and will not satisfy so complicated other problems of historical causation. The historian who glibly says because of and then trips slightly on his way to deal with some other political cataclysm or human enigma and satisfy a psychology or political philosophy as superficial in the reader as it is in him should be ridiculed out of existence. Although the methods of objectivity and induction seem slow at first, results will multiply as time goes on, and one well-grounded research makes another that much easier. The paradox of histeriometry, which I have explained at such length, is a mathematical concept which gives great encouragement to ventures in the domain of historical interpretation, especially because it shows that it may not be necessary for the investigator to spend a great deal of time deciding upon the reliability of the sources he proposes to use. He should start with authorities supposed to be good, because good authorities contain fewer random errors than do poor ones, and therefore any previously hidden truth will be forced to show itself more distinctly. He should, on beginning the research, consider the question of constant errors, biased towards hypothesis, which he has in mind, and before closing the research he should consider this question again, either prove its triviality or measure its importance but he need not concern himself again with the scattering errors. The random or scattering errors become important only should he wish special refinement of measurement. For instance, in the present research, my conclusion is that the monarchs have influenced history. Moreover, that monarchs have influenced European history from the 11th to the 19th century very much, and that the characteristics of monarchs are correlated with the conditions of their countries to at least a probable r equals 0.60. None of these conclusions could have been falsely induced by the random or scattering errors. Consideration of random errors is necessary only when measuring the full correlation. In all attempts to unravel causation in history, the comparative method is needed, and reliable results can only be obtained after a wide range of historical reading has been methodically systematized. We must discover correlations, after finding that A is correlated with B, we must then devise ways of determining how much A is a cause of B or how much B is a cause of A, or if both are caused by still another force. We can only have a science of history by comparing facts drawn from a great many countries. We must not ignore the evidence from the smaller nations. A knowledge of the history of Holland, Denmark, Spain, Portugal, or even Mecklenburg and Rus may be, for some purposes, just as valuable as a knowledge of the history of Rome or Greece or England. The 14 countries here studied are widely representative of the various people of Europe. I should like to have included Hungary, Poland, Greece, Saxony, and Bavaria, and several other countries. Indeed, the Italian cities might very profitably be studied in relation to the Zephorzas, the Viscontis, and the Medizis. As every reader must imagine, the labour is considerable in bringing together all the relevant materials covering several centuries for any one country, but it would not have done to have stopped without a sufficiently large collection of elementary data. The number of elementary parts, miniature histories, which I have constructed, 368, being large enough to meet statistical demands and to answer nearly all the questions which I had in mind at the start, I have stopped with this number. The following 14 chapters gives a summary, as briefly as possible, of the history of the 14 countries studied. They discuss the more concentrated tabulations found in the appendix. If a monotonous story is thus presented, the reader must remember that it is only the reputation of observations that compels the surety of science. Probably no other single factor will be found as important as the one here emphasized.
and if this be true, then the key to this section of European history is to be found in the material which lies ahead, a disclosure which clearly merits the most careful scrutiny. End of chapter 2